Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome again. And it's a very special podcast today. We're, we're, we're celebrating Christmas, or whatever we're celebrating. We're celebrating it anyway, aren't we, Gary? Hello, this is Gary Bain, and I'm Peter Hart. So I'm both of us. Oh, that's a bit confusing for the listener. <laughs> uh, okay. Actually, we're we're doing a podcast on the Christmas truce, nineteen fourteen. I thought that's we were what just, we're doing. We're having a nice chat. No, it won't be nice at all, listeners. Oh, because oh. right. Pete's in it. Right. Oh, so, sorry. Was that a bit passive aggressive? Yes, <laughs> very passive aggressive. I've. Well, that's a shame. I was just going for aggressive. <laughs> Yes, I wondered about. Really, we we've been very taken with someone calling our insults passive aggressive. We really can't see the passive bit. <laughs> you fat bastard! Right <laughs> now, to get Merry on. Where, now, so this is a, a special. It's going to be broadcast on Christmas Eve or somewhere around about then. And uh, we're getting into the mood. I'm wearing uh, I'm wearing a Christmas themed uh, dress thong, thong. <laughs> and uh, Gary's uh, Gary's uh, festooned with. Uh, with uh, holly, <laughs> I believe that's part of some sexual routine, other than some actual Christmas thing. But you do look very sort of pained. <laughs> yeah, it's the name of the neighbour's dog. I'm festooned with the neighbour's dog. <laughs> Is it really? That's interesting. Yeah. All right, now, uh, so where are we? By late December, the what, 1914, the war's been going on raging, raging, Gary, raging. For uh, about five months. I'm not good at maths, so we'll leave it about because I haven't worked it out. And if anyone has ever thought it would be all over by Christmas, then it's clear that they've just made a terrible mistake. Uh, and uh, everyone can now see the Imperial Journey probably the second best army in the world. Well, best army, second, third biggest. It's huge, uh, backed by a huge, successful economy. Uh, there's no chance of victory in the foreseeable future, is there, Gary? Um um, do you think? Uh, do you, how do you think people are feeling about each other as they sit in the trenches or stand in the trenches up to their asses in mud and blood? How do you? Uh, are they started to gain a respect for each other? Or what do you think? Yeah, and I mean, uh, by this time they're in a, a, a stalemate. Frankly, that uh, uh, the trench system is, as we've mentioned before, stretching right across the continent, and um, 
in some places they're very close to each other so they can actually see each other across the uh, uh, the no man's land between the trenches so they they know they're up against a hard enemy yeah and, and and i suppose when you're enduring the same sort of problems you've got the same awful bloody weather the same terrible living conditions uh and what about all the terrible things that the germans had done to us because uh, of course uh i mean what about all those dum dum bullets explosive bullets about the the true do you think those well, that's, that's all dying down a bit now as people get a bit more experience so they understand you know the destructive power of a high velocity velocity bullet so you've got shrapnel bullets and, and shell fragments and they and the damage they do to to the human body is, is becoming apparent so they're uh, they're in their trenches facing each other across no man's land and uh, it's it's a new reality isn't it uh, there seems to be no end in sight it, it's it's freezing cold uh, a lot of you may wish to listen or already listen to our podcast on conditions in december 1914 it's bloody awful um, and it's boring. I mean, they have to do routine things just to maintain the trenches. So it's it's in some ways monotonous. And in some areas, they're, they're starting to move towards a sort of live and let live approach, aren't they? Um, it, it's 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 sort of helped because a lot of Germans could obviously no English person could ever speak any foreign language. It's uh, just not in our nature. We obrigado. Uh, obrigado. Yes. <laughs> You're Portuguese today, are you? And yeah. or whatever language that was, he said hastily. I don't want the internet to go wild. Uh, and then, uh, but but a lot of Germans seem to be able to speak English. There's been a fair number of the German soldiers had worked uh, in Britain before the war, and it it, it, it you get a lot of the uh, people shouting across that they used to be a waiter in London or Claridge's or whatever. Uh, that 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 that, uh, and they were all uh, German butchers and some of the things like that. Uh, now, this live, what, what's live and let live? What is live and let live, uh, Gary? It's, I think the clue may be in the term. Well, there was, there was quiet times, so there was a, a, a grudging respect for things like latrine breaks, so people were allowed to go to the, the lavatory in peace. Um, if they were doing mundane tasks, like, for example, some repairs to the parapets and things like that, they were left alone. They, they were allowed to get on with it. Um, they had, in some areas, they had these informal shooting contests where they'd put up a target in, in their trench and the enemy would shoot at the target. It's, 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 it's just, you know. Now, uh, this attracted the attention of an august figure. Now, this this man is a legend. We, we keep saying we do a podcast on him and we've never got round to him. Uh, but he's one of your all-time favourites because you said he's the only person you've ever met who's more bad-tempered and horrible than I am. Um, ever met I'm like 138 have I I didn't meet him Pete I've read about him what's his name Lieutenant General Horace Smith Dorian uh, and he, he's uh, in charge of Second Corps as we all know uh, what does uh, what does Horace say experience of this and every other war proves undoubtedly that troops in trenches in close proximity to the enemy slide very easily if permitted to do so, into a live-and-let-live theory of life. Understandings amounting almost to unofficial armistices. Grow up... Let's try and put my teeth in for that. Armistices. <laughs> Grow up between our troops and the enemy with a view to making life easier until the sole object of war becomes obscured. That's a... What a fantastic sentence that the sole object of war becomes obscured so that's to kill people then 
that becomes obscured. And officers and men sink into a military lethargy from which it is difficult to arouse them. When the moment for great sacrifices again arises, the attitude of our troops can be readily understood and to a certain extent command sympathy. So long as they know that no general advance is intended, they fail to see any object in undertaking small enterprises of no permanent utility, certain to result in some loss of life, and likely to provoke reprisals. Such an attitude is, however, most dangerous, for it discourages initiative in commanders and destroys the offensive spirit in all ranks. Friendly intercourse, <laughs> unofficial armistices, for example, we won't fire if you don't, etc., and the exchange of tobacco and other comforts, however tempting and occasionally amusing they may be, are absolutely prohibited. Now, I, I found that a great quote. Uh, it, 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 it sort of sums up a sort of understanding, but never, having, having gone through how it's all very understandable, the absolute hammer coming down on it. <laughs> You're not going to do it. You might want to. Um, now, uh, so let's, let's we're moving towards Christmas now. Twenty fourth of December. What was the weather like, Gary? Was it uh, was it balmy sunshine? Yeah. <laughs> no, Pete. If anybody listened to our previous uh, conditions episode, they'll know that it was bloody freezing. Oh no! Uh, snowing. Snowing. Uh, there'd been. Uh, uh, Additional clothing sent out from the UK and people were knitting socks if they could work out how big they needed to be and sending <laughs> that sort of thing out. It was absolutely awful. Now, uh, so the, the 24th of uh, December, there's not a lot to look forward to. So the season of uh, peace and goodwill to all, it's almost a, a surrealistic idea, a concept, isn't it? Uh, um, it, it? So who starts the Christmas truce? Well... You'll be surprised to know who starts it, because essentially it's the Germans. Because well, the Germans celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. So, you know, effectively they start the celebrations, for want of a better word, um, the evening before the British would. So that's when they'd open their prezies, was it? It's when they would sit around their fire and open their prezies and exchange nuts. <laughs> I'll crack your nuts in a minute, sunshine. Now, Lieutenant Walther Sten, 16th uh, Infantry Regiment, 6th German Army, said, uh, On Christmas Eve at noon, fire ceased completely. We had received mail from Germany. There were heaps of parcels coming in. Later on, when it became dusk, we opened the parcels and tried to be a little like at home. Write letters, that sort of thing. Of course, it was unusual that the opposite side also ceased fire because they, they always maintained sparse rifle fire. Then my officer controlling the sentries came in and, and asked, Do you expect a surprise attack? Because it is very unusual, the situation. I said, No, I don't think so. But anyway, everybody's awake. No one is sleeping and the sentries are still on duty. So I think it's all right. The night passed and not a single shot was fired. Sorry, can I just repeat his name? His name is Leutnant Walter Sten. He'd lived a long time in England. He'd picked up a bit of a Cockney accent at times. Uh, okay. uh, now, uh, are the British getting any prezies from home? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, they're getting inundated with letters and parcels containing all sorts of things. What sort of thing? 
Well, there, for one thing, there was a special gift that was commissioned for every soldier, which uh, originated from Princess Mary. It's a tin, and, and it's very collectible even today. And it contained tobacco, cigarettes and sweets, and uh, amongst other things that would be issued on Christmas Day to troops in the field. You've, you've got, you're going to put a picture of, of one of these up. It's not an original, though. You want to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got, I've got the Daily Mail 100th anniversary, 100th anniversary reproduction one. It's, it's solid stuff i i shall put that up that'll be good um now all told there's a bit of a strange atmosphere in the air from both sides have started to become aware that it's not usual there's something going on something in the air but but what is it and you can see walter stens uh, and uh and 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 the other officer that they're, they're, they're when when something's different in warfare it's often an attack looming isn't it it's it, a surprise attack uh, it, 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 so you could be, on one hand, it could be some sort of truce or gesture of friendship. On the other hand, it could be a murderous, vicious raid or attack. Um, I don't know. So they're pondering. And, and, and the next quote is from Private William Quinton, 2nd Bedfordshire Regiment. And he's, he's looking across to the German trenches, across at people like Walther Stenz. And what does he say, Gary? Something in the direction of the German lines caused us to rub our eyes and look again. Here and there, showing just above their parapet, we could see very faintly what looked like very small coloured lights. What was this? Was it some prearranged signal in the forerunner of an attack, or was it to make us curious and thus expose ourselves to a sudden raking of machine gun fire? We were very suspicious, and were discussing this strange move of the enemy, when something even stranger happened. The Germans were actually singing. Not very loud, but there was no mistake in it. We began to get interested. The enemy, at least, were going to enjoy themselves as much as the circumstances would permit. Suddenly, across the snow-clad no-man's land, a strong, clear voice rang out, singing, and the opening lines of Annie Laurie. It was sung in perfect English, and we were spellbound. No other sound but this unknown singer's voice. To us, it seemed that the war had suddenly stopped. Stopped to listen to this song from one of the enemy. Not a sound from friend or foe. And as the last notes died away, a spontaneous outburst of clapping arose from our trenches. Encore! Good old Fritz! That was very well read. Um, so, uh, there's, there's lots of reports. I remember when I was writing uh, my book on 1914, uh, Fire and Movement. I call it the Curry Book. <laughs> I think we'd all know why. Um, and uh, the, the, the lots of the Germans had a, the, the, their, their Christmas trees is a German thing. Prince Alb, Albert, is it Albert? Yeah. Or is it Alfred? Albert brought it. Princess Victoria's consort brought it to England. It's not a Queen Victoria's. Queen Victoria's, yes. Um, and he brought something else. I've, now I've just remembered what else a Prince Albert is. <laughs> Have you got a Prince anyway, Albert? <laughs> this is a quote from Rifleman Hang on, Graham I want to Williams know whether you've got a Prince Albert. <laughs> of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade uh, of the London Regiment. Suddenly, lights began to appear along the German parapet, which were evidently makeshift Christmas trees, adorned with lighted candles, which burnt steadily in the still, frosty air. Other sentries had, of course, seen the same thing and quickly awoke those on duty asleep in the shelters to come and see this thing which had come to pass oh it sounds almost biblical then our opponents began to sing stiller nacht heliger nacht this was actually the first time i heard this carol which was not meant so popular 
in this country as it has since become. They finished their carol and we thought that we ought to retaliate in some way. So we sang the first Noel and when we finished, they all began clapping. And then they struck up another favourite of theirs, Oh Tannenbaum, and so it went on. So there we go. Um, there's lots of things. Uh, there's, there's an underlying friendliness going on, isn't there? There's, that's what's going on. And, and fraternal demonstrations have started to spread on both sides. Now, this is Lieutenant Wilfred Barham of the 1st East Kent Regiment. And he says, here with the Deutschers, who, <laughs> who we are supposed to regard with bitter hate, first of all shouted across at one of us. One of our f- fellows yelled out, come and have a drink. The answer was, come and have some plum pudding. Is that a euphemism? Then we called out, waiter, <laughs> answered by, how'd you like your eggs boiled? Our <laughs> 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 oh, banter then was as pathetic as our banter is, according to a substantial subsection of our listenership. <laughs> They're not as funny as they think they are. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they're... they're, they're so they're shouting across. What's the next step of a truce? And, and is it dangerous? Well, well, this is really quite quite brave, isn't it? To, the, the next step is to show yourself. Now, you're taking a real risk there because you're, you're, you're breaking the ingrained habits from painful experience um, because, you, you know, there are snipers. So if you get out of the trench to wander across, the, they might shoot you. Well, you don't even have to get out. If you put your head above that parapet, uh, as, you know, people over five foot nine um, would have painfully come to realise, you could be shot by the, the accurate fire of snipers. Now, what, what is the main motivation, do you think, of men to, at this stage to, 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 to actually risk everything? What, what is it? Well, it, I suppose it's, it's questioning, you know, what's, what, what are the Germans really like? Did they get the same sort of treatment that the British got? Were they suffering in the same way that that we were in the trenches? Were they really the monstrous, pickle-haubed creations that the propaganda had suggested? Or were they just ordinary blokes like them? So a lot you think a lot of it's curiosity. I know I, I, know I certainly do. It, That's it, the word I was struggling for. <laughs> it's a difficult word, especially at this time of the morning. Um, now, but the risks are real, aren't they? There's no two ways about it. And 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 you're going to be a, a, a Sergeant Frederick Brown now, uh, and you're watching one of your mates, Sergeant Frank Collins. Now you're both from the First Second Monmouthshire Regiment, a fine body of men, uh, and uh, you're watching. You're watching as uh, as uh, as um, Frank Collins takes the ultimate step forward. Uh, tell us. A rumour went round that an armistice was to take place from 9am until 12 noon in order that the Germans could bury their dead, who were lying between the trenches. Really, this was necessary, as when the wind was in our direction, the stench was pretty bad. About 8am, voices could be heard shouting on our right front, where the trenches came together to about 35 yards apart. German heads appeared, and soon our fellows showed themselves, and seasonal greetings were bawled back and forth. Evidently, Christmas feeling asserting itself on both sides. Presently, a Sergeant Collins stood waist high above the trench, waving a box of woodbines above his head. German soldiers beckoned him over, and Collins got out and walked halfway towards them, in turn beckoning someone to come and take the gift. However, they called out, Prisoner! 
and immediately Collins edged back the way he had come. Suddenly, a shot rang out, and the poor sergeant staggered back into the trench, shot through the chest. I can still hear his cries. Oh, my God, they've shot me! And he died immediately. Needless to remark, every head disappeared in a trice with very bitter feelings on our part. So this is a genuine risk. You are putting your life literally in the hands uh, of of the enemy, both sides. I'm not talking about the Germans as the enemy. They're doing this. Uh, anybody who puts their head above, above is taking a chance. That It's not just most of the people on the other side uh, are in the mood to uh, have a truce. It's everybody on the other side. There's no, there's no embittered individual. Um, so there's still... Individuals are uh, getting out of the trench, diving back in. They're gradually becoming... Bolder and bolder. And now you're going to be, and I insist on a Lancashire accent for this. This is uh, Private George Ashurst, the second Lancashire Fusiliers. He was one of our favourites. And uh, a lot of you will have his book, My Bit, which is a brilliant book. And you can listen to a long interview within 15 hours on the Imperial War Museum website. So uh, we can t- we can check the, his Lancashire accent with your Lancashire accent. Go, Lancashire, Gary. Marvin. We'd been standing up on the firing parapet and nobody was shooting. So one or two fellows jumped out on top. Another two stopped in the trench with their rifles ready, but they didn't need. As these two fellows got up, others followed and there were scores of us on top at the finish. It was grand. You could stretch your legs and run about on the hard surface. We tied an empty sandbag up with its string and kicked it about on top, just to keep warm, of course. And Jerry... He was sliding on an ice pond just behind a line. We could tell the way he started off, went so gently across to the other end and then another followed. We did not intermingle. Part way through, we were all playing football, all on top. It was so pleasant to get out of that trench from between them, two walls of clay, and walk and run about. It was heaven. That's, that's interesting. Football, Gary, football. Well, not, uh, but it's not no... organised, it's just kicking a couple of rags about. And the other thing is it's not but with the Germans. It's entirely separate. In other words, they're just kicking a, a, their makeshift ball amongst themselves. Uh, the Germans are uh, quite a way away from the sound of it. Now, in this section held by the second Royal Welsh Fusiliers, the, the officers had said, there will be no fraternisation. He was a German. They were German officers, were they? A lot of the, lot of the Royal <laughs> Welsh Fusiliers officers were German. Uh, as you would remember, if you'd remember the middle name of that officer whose name I've forgotten. But you did point it out in a previous podcast that he was definitely German. His middle name, Ranke, was his middle name. Why can I remember his Robert Graves? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, he was German, yeah. <laughs> he was. Anyway, uh, no fraternisation. But would it hold? Now, they're facing some Saxons, uh, and there's always this idea that Saxons are, are more friendly and cuddly than the Prussians. And I'm not sure about any of this. Uh, uh, but it, they made them an offer. It was an offer they couldn't refuse as up, fine, upstanding British soldiers. And I know, Gary, you would definitely have not refused this offer. There's two things you can offer a British soldier. <laughs> right, I'd better get on with it. This is Captain Charles Stockwell, and he says, The Saxons began shouting, God, shut, we will bring us some beer if you'll come over. Whereupon some of our men showed above the parapet and waved their hands. Then the Saxons climbed over the parapet and trundled a barrel of beer to us. <laughs> then lots of them appeared without arms. Blimey, armless, eh? And then, and of course, our men showed themselves. 
Then, though we'd been warned that the Germans would attack us, two of our men broke out of the trench and fetched the barrel. Then another broke out and brought back a lot of cigars. All the Saxons came out of their trenches and called out to us to, to come across. Don't you ever, ever take the mickey out of my accent again. That was the most appalling German accent I've ever heard. It's been unstudenting, mate. I'm a yeah. female German student. Mate. Yes, mate. <laughs> Although, you know, you, you, you start to get more and more fraternisation in no man's land. But it's not universal is it is it there's there's a it, it i mean there's four corps on the western front british corps uh, where where's the fraternization generally well it's, it's generally in the the uh, third and fourth corps the first and second corps don't really get involved in it so that's Hague and uh, smith dorian's corps tend to be slightly more uh, well they've also been in the war worse haven't they I mean, they're the ones who took the real hammer. Now, the next quote uh, is from... Uh, it's, nevertheless, there was still incident. I'm not saying it was this universal anywhere. Now, the next one is uh, Lieutenant Sir Edward Hulse, Second Scots Guards. Another one of your accents this time. What, what, what's he got to say about it? By 8am, there was no shooting at all, except for a few shots on our left. At 8.30am, I was looking out and saw four Germans leave their trenches and come towards us. I told two of my men to go and meet them, unarmed, as the Germans were unarmed, and to see that they did not pass the halfway line. We were 350 to 400 yards apart at this point. My fellows were not very keen, not knowing what was up. So I went out alone and met Barry. Barry? 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 Fasser? <laughs> One of our ensigns, also coming it's out... It's informal, yeah, Barry. <laughs> also coming out from another part of the line. By the time we got to them, they were three quarters of the way over and much too near our barbed wire. So I moved them back. They were three private soldiers and a stretcher bearer. And their spokesman started off by saying that he thought it only right to come over and wish us a happy Christmas and trusted us implicitly to keep the truce. I was dressed in an old stocking cap and a man's overcoat and they took me for a corporal, a thing which I did not discourage as I had an eye to going as near their lines as possible. Now, this could be a couple of themes here. Firstly, notice that it's to stop them getting near our lines, almost, that you go out. You can't shoot them in, as a human being, but you don't want them too close to your lines in case anything's going off. Ah, but you want to get a bit close to their lines. You want to have a look. You want to get... That's it. And hence, an officer disguised as a corporal. He looked like a corporal anyway. I was disguised as a corporal once. Now, 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 Hulse goes off to report to his battalion headquarters, which, of course, isn't that far away. And, and then when he comes back, he finds it all moved on a bit in his absence, doesn't it? Yeah, he says, I was surprised to hear a hell of a din going on and not a single man left in, the, in my trenches. They were completely denuded against my orders and nothing lived. I heard strains of Tipperary floating down the breeze, swiftly followed by a tremendous burst of Deutschland über alles. And as I got to my own company headquarters dugout, I saw, to my amazement, not only a crowd of about 150 British and Germans at the halfway house, which I had appointed opposite my lines, but six or seven such crowds all the way down to our lines, extending towards the 8th Division on our right. I bustled out and asked if there were any German officers in my crowd. I found two, but had to talk to them through an interpreter, as they could neither talk English nor French. Ah! And, of course, he couldn't speak German. Of course not. <laughs> they were podgy, fat... These guys sound a bit like you. Bourgeois, 
looking very red and full of sausage and beer. It is a very accurate description of Gary Bain, 2020. Yep. They were full of sausage and beer and wine and were not overly friendly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I explained to them that strict orders must be maintained as to meeting halfway and everyone unarmed. And we both agreed not to fire until the other did, thereby creating a complete deadlock and armistice, if strictly observed. These two fat swine would vouchsafe no information beyond giving me a very nasty cigar. Meanwhile, Scots and Huns were fraternising in the most genuine possible manner. He's not exactly lovable, is he, and, sir? He's <laughs> not. Mr. Holt. And, he, and he's also annoyed that they won't tell him anything. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, it, it, it's a, is this a sort of, is there a directing hand behind this or is it sort of just a, an organic process that's going on here, do you think, Gary? No, it had its own impetus, didn't it? And, and I'm sure it was uh, it was friendlier in some areas than others, but, uh, but it was expanding beyond the control of any one person. Now, you're going to be Lieutenant Walther Stenz, 16th Infantry Regiment. Uh, tell us about, well, tell us, tell us what he feels. The whole thing was an absolutely spontaneous action. That is the worst German accent I've ever heard. <laughs> the whole thing was an absolutely spontaneous action. Not even the officers knew anything about it. Then I rushed out of the dugout. I found many of my company standing in the open, waving and saying, Merry Christmas! The men hesitantly advanced to the middle, first hesitating, then later on stepping freely forwards, and in the middle of no man's land they met, shook hands, and then began talking. Then more men came out. Suddenly, no man's land was covered with Indian and German soldiers. I met some English officers. We shook hands, offered cigars, and talked as much as we could. Anyhow, we understood each other. Of course, everybody was unarmed, not even a knife. That was given out as a rule. But the sentries, they were standing on duty, Rifle at the ready on both sides. That, that, that's interesting. That there are precautions, but you. That, but that again, this isn't uniform because we've just heard from uh, from uh, the, the other chap, Hulse, that in his trenches there were no there, there yeah. were no sentries. So again, you don't take a general principle from an individual uh, personal experience account. It's just his experience, not general. Uh, I find that quite interesting. Now, even senior officers can't do much, can they? Um, and this is a, a Brigadier General Lord Edward Glycan. Uh, so he's very posh. Glycan. 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 Yeah. Is that like more? German. morning? Oh, are you saying he's German? German? Never. Glycan. Brave English lad. Uh, they accept the truce as a fait accompli. Um, but... They're very, very keen to make sure the Germans don't get too close. They don't want them to see how bad the British trenches are for a start. That's a very sensible thing. Uh, and they also didn't want them to see how many men there were in in any particular place. Uh, and so he, like uh, Holtz, is determined not to let them get past halfway between the trenches. And he gives, this is a quote from him. They came out of their trenches and walked across unarmed with boxes of cigars and seasonable remarks. What were our men to do? Shoot? You could not shoot unarmed men. Let them come. You could not let them come into your trenches. So the only feasible, <laughs> the only thing feasible at the moment was done. And some of our men met them halfway and began talking to them. 
he got into trouble for doing it. But after all, it's difficult to see what we could otherwise have done unless we shot the very first unarmed men. Oosh man who showed himself. Poor uncourage les autres. <laughs> French. <laughs> Always does that to me. Always sends me off. <laughs> but we did not know what he was going to do. <laughs> Meanwhile, our officers got an excellent close views of the German trenches and we profited accordingly. The Bosch did not, for he was not allowed close enough to us. <laughs> well, does this that was, that was brilliant. Oh, shut up. <laughs> now, so the, Brit- the troops are fraternising in no man's hand. British officers are taking unfair advantage. Would that, would that be fair to say? Yeah. Uh, they tr- what are they trying to do? What ex- so they're trying to do? What they're trying to stop the Germans from doing? See the ge- the state of German trenches, judge the state of German morale, and just count numbers. Count, see how many you know. Judge how how many people there are. Now this is another quote, and this is from uh, Lieutenant Bruce Barnesfeller. Bairnsfeller? Barnesfeller? Bairnsfeller? First Royal Warwickshire Regiment, and uh, I like Bruce. He's a lovely lad. And he says this. I joined the throng about halfway across the German trenches. It all felt most curious. Here were these sausage-eating wretches who had elected to start this infernal European fracas and in so doing had brought all, us all into the same muddy pickle as themselves. This was my first real sight of them at close quarters. Here they were, the actual practical soldiers of the German army. There was not an atom of hate on either side that day, and yet, on our side, not for a moment was the will to war and the will to beat them relaxed. It was just like the interval between rounds in a friendly boxing match. The difference in type between our men and theirs was very marked. There was no contrasting the spirit of the two parties. Our men, in their scratch costumes of dirty, muddy khaki, with their various assorted hairdressers, hairdressers, Headdresses of woollen helmets, mufflers and battered hats were a light-hearted, open, humorous collection as opposed to the sombre demeanour and stolid appearance of the Huns in their grey-green faded uniform, top boots and pork pie hats. Ha! The shortest effect I can give of the impression I had was that our men, superior, broad-minded, more frank, and lovable beards were regarding these faded, unimaginative products of perverted culture as a set of objectionable but amusing lunatics whose heads had got to be eventually smacked. Polly smacked your or head, killed. Yes, that's, uh, why, that's why sometimes I don't know where I am. <laughs> no, it's interesting, Ben's father was in the area around Plugstead. Wasn't he or Plug Street? As the, the we Thomas both like that it. area, don't we? Yeah, it's, and and I think there's a, a plaque on a, the side of a, a farm where he was, and and it's and it's not far past that bloody awful UEFA <laughs> monument to uh, the football match, which we'll come on to. Uh, it's a lovely area that uh, uh, Plug Street Wood, the rifle pits, everything. Uh, you can track the, the drawings that uh, that uh, Bairnsfeller put in his book, uh, Bullets and Billets, is it? I think you've got it. We both got it. Uh, those you can actually track where you are. It's a fascinating area. Fascinating. Visit it, but don't look at this. You a for sausage. And you had uh, uh, right. you had Churchill in the area as well, and and at the centenary, Hang they, on. they opened a, a really good interactive visitors centre there too, which I'd heartily recommend. Ah, 
Now, I haven't seen that, so I'm looking forward to getting back out there. Perhaps you'll show it, Mikael. I will. Now, uh, so uh, there's another practical reason for the truce. What could that be, uh, Private Henry Williamson, 1st, 5th London Rifle Brigade? The Germans started burying their dead, which had frozen hard, and we picked up ours and we buried them. Little crosses of ration box wood were nailed together, quite small ones, and marked in indelible pencil. They were putting in the German for Vaterland und Freiheit, for Fatherland and Freedom. I said to a German, excuse me, but how can you be fighting for freedom? You started the war and we are fighting for freedom. He said, excuse me, English comrade, but we are fighting for freedom for our country. I've also put, here rests an unknown hero known to God. Oh yes, God is on our side. And I said, he is on our side. And that was a tremendous shock. I began to think that these chaps were like ourselves and who felt about the war as we did. They said, it will be over soon because we shall win the war in Russia. And we said, no, the Russian steamroller is going to win the war in Russia. Well, English comrade, do not let us quarrel on Christmas Day. And that does sound like the start of a classic pub fight. <laughs> now, I think I've seen uh, Henry Williamson. I think he, he went on to, to become quite a famous author, didn't he, Pete? And, uh, he did, but I've never... He, it's a it's a big five-volume five series of books, which people rave about, which I, I couldn't get on with at all. Well, I think he features uh, as well in the 1960 BBC series, uh, The Great War. He does. He does. And you can hear that at the War Museum or on the internet. Yeah, uh, I remember his voice being very, very eloquent, very well spoken. Much akin to your own, Gary. That's what I thought. Now, um, let's get on to the football matches. Um, the idea that football matches are played in uh, between the British and Germans in no man's land took a strong hold. And uh, the evidence is a little intangible. And I, I would like to pay tribute here to the work of Taft Gillingham, uh, Chief Chum, as they call him, uh, uh, the, the lead of the khaki devils, the khaki somethings anyway. Uh, but he's a, a genuine sex god. The khaki comrades. No. No, the khaki chums. That's it. <laughs> but he's a, a genuine sex god. He's a, a lovely chap. He runs also runs the Great, the great War Huts uh, and has a series of brilliant uh, films podcasts, or, which are, uh, are brilliant. Uh, but he has done a lot, a lot of work on this, hasn't he? Uh, he he's, he's been quite magnificent in what he's done. Um, and and we're, we're, we're following in his footsteps a little bit. Uh, but... The only two semi-feasible accounts, and I mean semi-feasible, uh, are, are these. There's one interview recorded in the 1960s, which, which has uh, left Lieutenant uh, Johann Niemann of the 133rd Saxon Regiment talking about a game he reckons they played with the Scottish Highlanders, i.e. the new, in no man's land between Frelingen and Hooplings. Uh, right, uh, I'm going to read this one. Here we go. A Scottish soldier appeared with a football, which seemed to come from nowhere. And a few minutes later, a real football match got underway. The Scots marked their goal mouth with, strange, with their strange caps. And we did the same with ours. It was far from easy to play on the frozen ground. But we continued, keeping rigorously, rigorously to the rules, despite the fact that it only lasted an hour and we had no referee. A great many of the passes went wide, but all the amateur footballers, although they must have been very tired, played with great enthusiasm. 
huge enthusiasm as well. Us Germans really roared when a gust of wind revealed that the Scots were and draws under their kilts and hooted and whistled every time they caught an impudent glimpse of one posterior belonging to one of yesterday's enemies. The game finished with a score of three goals to two in favour of Fritz against Tommy. Now, this is recorded long after the event and is falls into the category, I would say, of too good to be true. There are several points about this that are dodgy. There don't seem to be any uh, corresponding accounts from the other side. It is too perfect a story. Uh, what do you think? Well, it must have been the last time that the Scottish got two goals against the Germans, for starters. And the last one was definitely not offside. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, now, the other account that we've found is an impressionistic, and I mean impressionistic, and and when I say impressionistic, that, that... surely casts a little bit of doubt but i'm not saying i'm not saying either of these people are lying i'm just saying that you have to be dubious about any of the oral history especially when it's recorded 50 60 70 years afterwards this is private ernie williams of the first sixth cheshire regiment and it's it's got its home at the war museum you're going to be ernie the ball appeared from somewhere i don't know where but it came from their side it wasn't from our side where the ball came it was a proper football They took their coats off some of them and put them down as goalposts. One fellow went in goal and then it was just a general kickabout. I should think there would be at least a couple of hundred taking part. I had a go at it. I was pretty good then at 19. Everybody seemed to be enjoying themselves. There was no sort of ill will, no referee. We didn't need a referee for that kind of game. It was like playing as a kid in the streets, kicking the ball about. There was no score, no tally at all. It was simply a melee. Now, that that, that 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 account is, funnily enough, for me, more believable than the other one. Uh, I still don't know, and he might have got confused about dates, he might have got confused about various things, but there does seem to be some slight evidence that on the 1st 6th Cheshire Regiment there was some sort of game with the Germans. I am definitely not saying that there was a game. I'm saying that, 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 that this is possible. Now, uh, the bulk of the games... That the eyewitness accounts report seem to be impromptu games on their own side. Now, there is a whole element of this which you want to talk about, isn't it? And it's this, it's UEFA and the monument and Platini. Uh, can, can you take us through it, Gary? Because you've been looking into this a bit. Yeah, I mean, very briefly, the, there is a, a UEFA monument to the, the football match which uh, they erected on, uh, in, uh, I think it was December 2014. Uh, during the centenary and the now disgraced UEFA president Michel Platini joined local officials and members of uh, the uh, presidents in Combine Wannerton in Belgium to to mark this supposed anniversary and I'm just going to read what he says this is Mr Platini quoted and he says we are gathered here as one to mark that moment of brotherhood and friendship which reassures us of our shared humanity. I find it particularly moving to imagine those young men 100 years ago finding a common language in football to express their shared brotherhood. Yeah. And what well, do you think of that, the... Was it? <clears throat> no. no. <clears throat> I mean, we'll, that we'll suggests move. some sort of altruistic motive, you know, that, that peace could have come from this football match, and it's complete bloody nonsense. I think uh, the, the, the football, what, what people are misunderstanding is that there was definitely a truce on yep. certain parts of the front, or even was it between the French and Germans in places. 
the question is whether it was a football match, which for some reason people fixate on. And yet it's just, I mean, there's accounts that they actually had an impromptu fox hunt. Well, it's chasing a hare in no man's. There's accounts of all sorts of things. What's true and what isn't is difficult to establish. Now, the, the thing is, it's not the football that's important. There's very little evidence for it. There is some evidence for it. But why do people get so excited? Why do people get go over the top about it? it, it, it but it's, it's also, in that statement, it's, it's being uh, used in a way that, that it couldn't possibly have happened. It, it wasn't some moment of peace amongst the troops. Even if there was a kickabout, that's what it was, a kickabout. And that's just young men in groups together. That happens. And like so many of these modern memorials, it's more about the people who put it's it up. It's more about than UEFA, it. yeah, yeah. And, and, and Platini than it is about uh, 1914. Now, let's, let's crack on. Uh, as we've said, uh, uh, the, 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 it was, certainly wasn't a universal truce. Uh, uh, where British battalions are facing Prussian battalions, they tend to be a bit more cautious because they don't trust them, which is doubtless unfair. They, were, they felt more at home with the Saxons and Westphalians. That's the prejudices of the time. And also the efficiency of the Prussian uh, <laughs> army. Uh, Haig's first car, pretty unaffected. Most of smith Doran's second corps, uneffect, pretty unaffected. And it, how long does the truce last, Gary? Uh, is it, is it, is it, is it uh, defined by a specific time? No, it varies. In some areas, it's literally just Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But in some areas, it went on for several days, as much as a week in some areas. It becomes a new normality in some places, doesn't it? Um, and uh, but, but there's still this underlying motivation. That, that what's, it is a truce, but also both sides are, are building... They're improving their trenches, aren't they? Because you can actually show yourself. Because if you showed yourself while digging, you get a bullet through the head or, or through the arm if, you, if your shovel arm comes up above the top. But uh, you, you're going to be uh, Edward Hulse again, Lieutenant Sir Edward Hulse, Second Scots Guards. And what does he say? We improved our dugouts, roofed in new ones, and got a lot of very useful work done towards increasing our comfort. Directly it was dark, I got the whole of my company onto improving and remaking our barbed wire entanglements all along my front and had my scouts out in front of the working parties to prevent any surprise, but not a shot was fired and we finished off a real good obstacle unmolested. Although I do not trust them a yard, I'm convinced that all they want is to see us making ourselves thoroughly comfortable and to assure themselves that we are not going to attack. So much so that I honestly believe that if we had called on them for, t for fatigue parties that night to help us put up our barbed wire, they would have come over and done so. They are, I am sure, pretty sick of fighting and found the truce a very welcome respite and were therefore quite ready to prolong it. In fact, made us prolong it by continually coming to talk one way and another. They were quite ready to have a respite and to improve their own comforts and trenches like us. Now this is uh, this is at the root of things that we 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 must. I'm not being horrible. I'm not trying to spoil the Christmas truce, people. I just, if you want to understand something, you've got to look at what's happening. The mass, the vast majority of the participants, it's 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 a matter of convenience, uh, mingled with the maudlin sentiment of Christmas, isn't it? it? It's not some deep flowering, as you said, of the human spirit rising up against the war. That's not what's going on, is it? It's not. It's not political. It's not anti-war. It, it what is it so let's go through what it is uh, you let, let you tell me what it is what 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 are, give us some reasons what is really going on 
Well, it, you know, let's 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 be clear. It, it, it enabled a celebration of Christmas. Uh, they could do that in a free, more jovial and above all safe environment. And uh, don't forget, they'd had months of exhausting torments that they'd had to endure. This was a release for them. Um, and we talked about one motivation already, didn't we? I, I remember you, you pointed out the curiosity. Curiosity. Now, curiosity could kill the cat, as it did with uh, Sergeant Collins. But it, it also, you just want to see what's over there. You want to see the, who these murdering Germans are. They want to see who these murdering Brits are. It, 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 and, and the final point, well, it, you might sort of restate Well, it's well it, made by, um, uh, by the... Uh, Hulse. Hulse. It, it's to carry out vital, and it is vital, works on, on the, the trenches, which they pre- pretty much been nigh on impossible uh, under the, the constant threat of a sniper, and certainly would have to have been done at night, uh, and you would have suffered casualties. So we're repeating these points because we want to hammer them home. It's not a flowering of the human spirit. And also, it can't last. It's a break from reality, isn't it? It's not the dawn of a brave new world, is it? Why can't we just all love each other, sir? Why can't we just all live in peace? Get your rifle out, Private Bain, and shoot the bloody (laughs) Germans. Um, now, how how does the truce end? I could see this might be dangerous as well, uh, because how does a truce end and when? Um, now, for the second uh, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, it ends early on Boxing Day. And, and I think this is the way to end a truce, isn't it? And this is Captain Charles Stockwell. Uh, and he says this. Not a shot all night. Our men had sing-songs. Ditto the enemy. He played the game and never tried to touch his wire or anything. Crikey. At 8.30am, I fired three shots in the air and put up a flag with Merry Christmas on it, and I climbed on the parapet. He put up a sheet with Thank You on it, and the German captain appeared on the parapet. We both bowed and saluted and got down into our respective trenches. He He fired two shots in the air, and the war was on again. So that was handled properly. That's brilliant, yeah, yeah. In some sectors, uh, well, they always say that it's the generals that broke it. But in some sectors, the artillery open up, don't they? And, and it's, it's very difficult to have a truce if one side or the other is firing big banging shells into your lines. Uh, um, the other things, what other things could end the troops? Well, what about when battalions well, rotation, change? You, you get changeover of troops. If you've got different troops in, they may not have shared the moment. Oh, Gary, Gary, th- those moments in No Man's Land will never, yeah, we'll never so they, I'll never forget that moment <laughs> in No Man's Land. <laughs> so they're not going to compromise, are they? They're, and, and of course, you're going to have in, individuals who are embittered, you know, may have lost a mate, for example. Uh, and, now you've and, got a story about this, haven't you? Uh, you're going to be Private Edward Rowe of the, I think it's the first East, it is the first East Lancashire Regiment. And on the 28th of uh, December, they're, they're, they're still at peace, aren't they? It's all lovely. He says, about 9.30am, a shot is fired from the direction of our company headquarters and a German falls. That started the war again. Three of our men, who were out looking for doors to roof some dugouts, were caught in the open coming back, and two were wounded. We found out who fired the shot. It was a young fellow, about 16 or 17 years of age, and a lance corporal. He was acting as a kind of ration corporal to the company quartermaster sergeant. The only qualifications he possessed for either his lance stripe or his employed job were his good looks. 
He got a couple of tops of buck <laughs> What's he rum. saying? I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit taken aback by that. He got a couple of tops of buck rum and he got brave. It was a wonderful achievement to shoot down a man standing behind his trench unarmed and smoking, a man that placed his trust in us. The young Lance Corporal thought he'd performed a wonderful deed. We did not like the idea of being the first to break the mutual agreement. The honour of the British Army was at stake and we lost it. So there's a variety. I think that's the, 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 the that's a rare thing. I think normally it, it was negotiated more in the way that Stockwell had done things. It was sort of by negotiation. But the truce is coming to an end and soon it, it's finished. Uh, whether it be one day, three days, four days, the war gets its grip again and the whole of the British sector is back at war. Um, was there any trouble? Was it, I mean, was, did the men go back to war willingly? They went back. There was still a, a willingness to, to follow the orders that were issued by the uh, by the NCOs and the officers, and and to kill Germans. They they there was it was as if there, there'd been a, an on off switch that was just switched back on. They would have rejoiced if the war had ended, but they were quite happy to stand alongside their comrades, weren't they? They were still willing, under orders, to kill Germans, and and in fact, some of them were quite enthusiastic about that prospect. They'd had their little break, hadn't they? Uh, do you think the truce was a, a, a kind of moral epiphany then? Uh, obviously not, from both no, of our points of view. No, I just think it was a, a, a practical uh, gap in the fighting. It, it was occasioned by Christmas, there's no doubt about that. But they both used it to their own advantage. I think they were both trying to find out information about the enemy facing them across the wire. And... Uh, so you're saying it was a short-lived and fairly shallow business. It's not some sort of incredible emotional cath- catharsis or anything like this. It, it's just... No, it's practical. And, and it allowed, you know, certainly from a British trench point of view, it, it allowed it allowed some much-needed improvement to those trenches. Um, but, you know, we keep coming back to it being occasioned by Christmas. So they meet the Germans, they put a face on their enemies, and what, what do you think they're willing to do after that, when the Shoot. truce is over? <laughs> uh, so the, the, the point is, in the end, that uh, Britain was still at war, Belgium and most a good part of northern France still occupied. German aggression, uh, not, not individuals, but uh, still there, isn't it? Um, the Germans and French, are, they're in a war of national survival. The, the, I, we think, and I think this is a, a joy, the truce changes nothing and in the end means nothing. Would you say that's fair? Uh, I'm not sure I'd agree it means nothing <clears throat> because I think it, it showed a level of uh, um, bravery in, in stepping over that parapet in the first place, place for both parties. There was a, a willingness to trust in the human beings in the opposite trenches. So I don't think it's meaningless from that point of view. That's a nice point. But I do think that, uh, you know, seeing it as some missed opportunity to end the war is wrong. It's just wrong. Well, um, uh, uh, we're we're pretty well finished now. Uh, We'd like to, uh, we hope you're all enjoying opening your Christmas presents or what other festival you're celebrating on, if you're an atheist like me, just having a good time anyway, just like you always do. Uh, But we'd like to sing you a little song, wouldn't we, Gary? Would we? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll count as in, Gary, on four, a one, a two, 
Oh, one, two, three, four. We wish, wish you a Merry Christmas. That's why I'm we unpopular. Wish you a Merry Christmas. Christmas. We, we wish you, you a, a Merry Christmas, Christmas and, and a Happy, happy New, New Year. Good times we bring, bring to you and your team. Or any other we, elected representative. We wish, we wish you, you a, a Merry Christmas. Christmas. You've gone very quiet. And a Happy, and a happy New, New Year. year. Happy More Christmas, of this rubbish Jones. next year. Cheers, Cheers mate. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?